This is a biggie, and I am not ashamed to scream it out. It's Lush Life's 150th episode. And if that weren't exciting enough, my guest is Elliot Ball of among many other bars he runs, the Cocktail Trading Company. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. What does it take to do 150 eps? Well, the support of all of you who listen to the stories that inspire us to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. The best producer in the business, and I am biased, Evo Terra of Simpler Media Productions and Podcast Pontifications, and of course, the participation of all my guests. Why is it so special for me to have Elliot on this monumental occasion? Well, if you close your eyes and click your heels three times, you'll head straight back to my first episode many, many moons ago. I was pretty new at this, and he was so game. It was Andy Mill, not only my first guest of all time, but also Elliot's partner at Cocktail Training Company. From that moment, I felt a deep connection to them and their bar. With their other partner, Ollie, their journey those almost four years since my first episode has been stratospheric. Now it's time for Elliot to tell us his story of how he's used his neuroscience background in the bar and catch up where Andy left off those four years ago because a lot has changed. But make sure to listen all the way to the end for a special announcement. But before that, I'll let Elliot begin. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up uh, down in Kent, so that's one of those places which isn't in London. And so if you're not from the UK, you will have never heard of it. And you'll ask where it is, and I'll say it's not in London. And it'll keep going like that for a little bit. But uh, it, yeah, it's about sort of maybe an hour, hour and a half, like uh, southeast of here, roughly. Um, my mum's Australian. My dad is so English. Uh, and I grew, yeah, I grew up there. I went to school there. And then went to university over in Bath. Studied psychology, neuroscience. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You're going way too quickly. All right, all right. All right. Your dad is so English. What so does that mean English. to you? Um, he rolls R's when there aren't even R's in the word. I got it. Uh, yeah, no, like he's he. I think I've seen him cry during the Queen's speech once. Yeah. Okay, so tough and R roller. Yeah, tough maybe. Um, <laughs> he's a he's a truly inspirational man. I think he's definitely more extraordinarily pleasant than tough. I think in terms of like surface terms, people would apply to him. Yeah, different, different. <laughs> so you said you studied science. Uh, I studied neuroscience. So, neuroscience. Yeah. yeah. So what even led you to neuroscience? Um, I mean, it was kind of a spin-off of psychology. Uh, so I studied psychology when I was at school. I did um, not A-levels. I did something called the International Baccalaureate, which is so much more work for not many good reasons, if I'm honest. Uh, and yeah, really not. A lot of those, usually if you want to go to the university in the States. Yeah, IB's got like more of a, an international recognition. Um, but given I was going to be going to university in the UK, it was just absolutely pointless. Did think, you think I'm going to be a psychologist or you were just going to university to learn how to think? Um, I, I 100% was one of those stereotype people who was putting off life by just taking the next academic step and going to university. I was eligible for a student loan, so I was like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> And why psychology, do you think? Um, I mean, there's a variety of answers. Of Some of them are cooler and some of them are more truthful than others. Uh, I think it was just more interesting to me at that stage. And then as I got into it, um, maybe I felt this at the time and maybe it's just a really nice retrospective on it. But I just don't think there's anything more interesting than people. Like even, you know, what we've done to our planet and what it might do to us in return is more interesting than any other form of science. Like the way the way atoms behave is predictable. The way humans behave is ridiculous. Uh, and I was always just fascinated by that. Excuse my ignorance, but what is the shift from psychology to neuroscience or is neuroscience just a fancier word for psychology. I mean, what is what it, led you to that? It's a slightly more specific t- part of it. So uh, psychology is like a, an umbrella term is horribly diverse. And I think it's still like the second most oversubscribed degree in the UK. Uh, it, it just covers so, so many different things. And the university I went to was much more like science-based. 
um, it, like Bath uh, is really big for things like engineering kind of thing. Uh, and while we studied a lot of different types of psychology within it, the bit that I was so much more interested in was neuroscience, perhaps because it was like that midpoint between science and you know humanity. Um, uh, trying to get those two gears to fit together is compellingly interesting. And again, forgive my ignorance. Again, is that the science of how the brain actually works? Essentially, yeah. Okay, so I got it. Yeah, you got it. (laughs) And so when you graduated, were you going to work for a neuroscientist? Were you a neuroscientist when you got out? Uh, So, I mean, I I had uh, a placement in my third year out at Macquarie University in Sydney, and I considered going back over there. I considered... A variety of things to be honest but I don't think I really had enough conviction for any of the any of the possibilities um, and so I'd, I'd worked in bars throughout uh, universities kind of how I you know, supported myself uh, and I just decided to keep working in bars um, I don't think there was any one turnaround point where I thought nah screw all of this this is what I love and I'm going to stick to it um, I, yeah I don't, think, I don't think I really thought that I think I just kept doing what I was doing and realized that I enjoyed it vastly more than anything I'd done within psychology. And conveniently, there aren't too many neuroscientists in bartending nowadays. So there was, there was definitely a niche available to me. <laughs> now, when you, were, when you decided to start working during university, mm-hmm. why did you pick a bar? Um, I think, I mean, there's definitely a bit of a stereotype of like, you know, hospitality jobs available to students. You know, it's it's one of the best and worst things about hospitality as an industry that you don't always need to be that skilled to to go into it. And I definitely wasn't very skilled in large part because I wasn't especially motivated. I was doing a very good degree at the time. So I wasn't exactly trying to build a career for myself by stepping into hospitality. Um, I, I liked what it did to my social life. Um, I've always kind of felt socially confined by stuff like I went to like a really nice school and everything but I kind of felt confined by the like the the bubble I was in there and when I went to university I like I deliberately went for the cheapest possible accommodation to try to escape that bubble and I think I found myself in a similar in a similar thing when uh I was at university which is you know you're stuck in a student bubble as well and that's a really diverse one but it's still got that univi that unifying demographic of you know, I'm an academic, I'm, you know, a student. Uh, and I loved the difference of stepping out of that and going into hospitality. So what kind, was it a bar, a pub? What um, kind of, do you remember your first job? Yeah, my ooh, very first pub job, I think might have been the Huntsman in Bath. And that was an absolutely gross bar. Uh, and then, <laughs> when, I mean, whenever I went, I mean, actually, no, there, there were places before that. I think that was my first one at uni, like in school holidays and stuff. Because I, I was from like quite a small, well, I think town would probably be, an overstatement village maybe there was a green and everything and uh, a pub i assume yeah and, and many pubs this is this is england <laughs> uh yeah so uh, like there were one or two like local restaurants and i was like a pot wash there and stuff and they'd let me like work on the bar a little bit even though that was definitely illegal because of my age um so I'd, I'd kind of always been doing it to some extent uh and then yeah uh, when, I, when i was at university i started working perhaps slightly more fun bars you know, definitely like one of those social high points as a student is having your friends come into the bar where you're working and you're like, free drinks for these guys or, you know, something like that. Definitely makes you feel amazing when you do it for the first few times at least. Do you think you met a lot of people who, uh, or that it fulfilled that need to meet people outside of the bubble? Yeah, 100%. Uh-huh. 100%. I mean, the funny thing is now I'm probably more confined to that bubble in a way because pretty much all my friends work in hospitality but they're still you know the most unbelievably diverse set of people and that's that's kind of what kept me glued to it because it's not just the people who you meet out on the floor that's that's the constant narrative which if i'm a little bit cynical it's very very fashionable to be saying about why you're a bartender it's oh i get to serve people and i get to meet all these new people and that is true and that is as invigorating as it can sometimes be crushing uh, but mostly the people I worked with were just amazing, like just such energetic people with such like brightness behind the eyes that I didn't, I hadn't encountered the same degree in psychology, mm. you know. Uh, so, you know, psychology, obviously, like very, very intelligent, motivated people working there. But that sense of energy I, I didn't encounter until I was working in hospitality. And when you were working throughout university, did you see it? A- difference in what you were doing or did you recognize a difference in what you were doing in the jobs that made you stay I mean, did you feel like you were growing um yeah uh i 
had a lot more fun. And I think that does produce a growth in itself, you know. Uh, there was a sense of self-confidence which came out through hospitality, um, which I definitely didn't have uh, exclusively from my degree. Like, even even as a student, like, you know, when you try to break down the things that, that make you confident as an individual, a lot of it is about your surroundings and the extent to which you think you're a master of them, what your social standing is, where you stand in, you know, whatever perceived ladder or pyramid or whatever. Um, but in hospitality, it's you know it's it's different to that i i think my self-worth was like redefined in a way and i just felt much more comfortable with myself my bizarre sense of humor and a variety of other things and i i think i i think i can kind of came to like myself more working in hospitality mm-hmm. and when you graduated and decided that you were just going to continue working in the bars were you going to stay in um in bath uh, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, graduating from a uh, neuroscience degree and going into bartending was really fun telling my parents. Uh, I wasn't sure if I should broach no, that, no, but now since you've, you've let it out of the bag. They're still getting over that. Um, <laughs> All right, since you brought it up. Yeah, that was, that was really um, fun. Uh, no, but like, I, so I don't Where know. were you working at that point? I was working in a bar called Sub 13. Okay. Um, and what kind of things were you doing there that were uh, making that, that you was so happy? That, that was a cocktail bar. And I, I spent a year working there and it was one of the best and worst years for me in that I had so much fun. It was so, it was such like a high intensity lifestyle. Um, but uh, it, it was also like gruesome work in some ways. Uh, so were you working at night and then going to university classes or were you just saying forget the university? So the, you know, well, the, I mean, the year, through. the year of sub 13 actually came after I graduated. Um, yeah. But yeah, when I, when I was at university, I was sort of putting 30, 40 hour, hours a week or so in, um, in uh, pubs, actually mostly a couple of bars, and then I'd you know have have classes and stuff, and that, that was a little bit of a stress, but not too bad. I, I was quite fortunate that I you know, bars a small place. You know, if you try to do that in London, you actually will lose probably three hours a day to travelling mm-hmm. between you know two separate jobs. Uh, Bath, even if it's on the other side of the city, and you really want to moan about it, it's still only a thirty-five minute walk at the absolute most. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you were getting all your work done. You were getting on your, as in your studies. Yeah, I, I was, I was okay for workload and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the other thing is, you know, people get, you know, their friendship groups like circles from so many different places. You've got your friends from school, your friends from university, your friends from your job, your friends from your local restaurant or bar, or you know, uh, friends from your dance class or your yoga class, or you know, your friends who are friends of your friends and friends of your husband or wife or you know, whatever. Um, Hospitality, I think, has stronger friendships than most other careers by such a long way. Of all the things that are conducive to friendship, like all the things that people go through together in hospitality, uh, it, it creates stronger bonds. Um, I and the, the, the people I worked with when I was, you know, part time leading into full time, uh, particularly my final year of university, uh, I was one of very few students on there. And uh, one of very few final year students who had like a dissertation and stuff like that to deal with, and they were super understanding. Mm-hmm. Like, and then I've, I've, I'm quite lucky in that I've always just been a grafter. Like, people often brag about being a grafter, and I don't think that's really necessarily something to be proud of. I think it's it's something where I can't trace the root of it. I can't remember the point at which I decided to just work really hard at stuff. I think that's just the way I'm wired. And as a result of that, it's not really something I've earned. So I have neither the right to be proud of it nor, you know, ashamed of it. Um, but uh, the guys I was working with knew that I was just naturally a hard worker. And so if I said to them, you know, I've, I've, got, some, I've got some big deadlines coming up and I would really help, I would really appreciate some accommodation with that, uh, they, they pretty much give it to me. So, you know, went both ways all right sub 13 when did you start working there and then we're going to go back or at the same time say why your um how it was that you told your family that you weren't going to do it anymore <laughs> yeah i think that was a steady process but uh, still going um but, no, uh sub 13 i joined um shortly after graduating um i not really decided what i wanted to do if i wanted to go back to australia if i wanted to move to london certainly wait, wait, hold on for a sec you said back to australia had you spent any time in australia yeah so i would had a, a year my third year of uni was in australia at a placement at macquarie university and only um, neuroscience no bars uh, no, no, no bars. in fact my visa wouldn't allow me to okay all right so back so you decided what so i was gonna do deciding whether to do that um yeah uh i i'm trying to remember exactly when i started working at sub um i decided to stay in bath and i think a part of that was procrastinating the next step you know if you if you 
graduate from a very oversubscribed degree, regardless of what your conviction is and what your direction and where you want to be, etc., there is a very daunting step, you know. If you graduate medicine, you're probably going to be some kind of doctor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you graduate English Lit, it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. And it is such, such a competitive job market. Um, So, like, in psychology, you know, most people either go into clinical or they go into teaching, uh, a couple of other things. And I didn't want to do any of them. Or academia, I guess. Yeah, I'll say academia. Um, I didn't want to do any of them. Uh, so I think I, I don't think I like made a decision to like s- sort of find a way to like apply the degree to hospitality. I think I just decided to stay in hospitality for now, you know. Uh, and I'd been doing part time stuff at Sub Thirteen. It was a really really fun bar at the time. It was probably like the best cocktail bar in the city, and I really loved learning about that stuff. Uh, and the team I worked with were like my best friends. They were super cool. Um, I, I every now and then when I'm interviewed, I'm asked to like name a mentor or something, and I I kind of struggle um to do that uh but if there was one person it would be um tim wellahan who was like the manager i worked with there who was just an incredibly solid guy and you know taught me a lot of stuff when it came to sort of the basics of cocktails um but yeah uh i was doing part-time there and then i came into work one day and they'd had a full-time kind of assistant manager position open up and i took it and yeah i had a solid year of 70 hour weeks which I loved and hated in equal measure and then burned out really hard and decided to move to London (laughs) so what did you like about working at you know what excited you about the cocktail part was it making the cocktail uh, you know you already said about Mm. the you love the people you work with was there also the god I asked 27 questions at once by the way (laughs) um you know the actual cocktail making that you fell in love with at all yeah um the the creativity part of it uh it was great i think i think i've been quite fortunate in that from from a very early standpoint i viewed the creativity conception part of cocktails and the like the actual manifestation like putting them together physically i've always viewed those as two separate things and i think that that saved me a lot of not hardship but probably just being a dick uh quite a lot of that in in the future because a lot of people confuse those two things and put their values in terrible places um, so I was I was lucky enough to just avoid that at an early stage, probably because of this Tim guy's guidance. Um, but yeah, like I love the creativity of coming up with new recipes, um, and even my very very rudimentary understanding of that at the time really really interested me. Um, but just the the service aspect of cocktails, of like being in a bustling setting, having someone come to you and ask you to make something from them, you know, not not to pour a beer or something like that, and you know. If you, if you have a divine interest in beers and wines and you want to maneuver someone towards the right choice, then in some ways you are creating that for them. Uh, but in a more literal sense, like putting something together for a customer, uh, I just, I loved it. Absolutely enjoyed it. Especially because, you know, I'd spent almost probably seven or eight years by this point working in pubs. Like it was so refreshing for me. Mm-hmm. And so then you said you very fast forwarded and said you went to London. You burned yourself out yeah. and went to London. Why was London going to be the next step? Well, again, luck. Uh, a lot of, you know, here at CDC, I probably receive five or six CVs uh, in, in email every week. And some of the time I have this little niggle where I just think this is the most staggeringly lazy job application I've ever seen because they haven't even written our own CV. It's just some Europass thing. Uh, they haven't addressed it. Like, if you want to find out the name of the owners of this company or the manager or anything, that's, it's so da- damn easy to do. Uh, and, you know, I, there's something that bothers me a little bit about just, like, just tossing your CV out to the world and expecting the world to come back to you with answers. But, you know, I, I always was much, much more specific. I basically was just better at, like, ap- applying for jobs, I guess. But... Um, there's also a sense of unfairness to that in that a lot of a lot of the CVs I'm getting coming from abroad, these guys didn't have, well, many advantages that I had, but one of them was just pure geography. Uh, I was, you know, just sort of burgeoning, just coming on this, like, this love of the drinks industry from Bath, less than 100 miles from what is probably the drinks capital of the world, and I'm a British national. Like, it's just impossibly lucky in many ways. There are lots of industries, you know, which have another capital city as you know the the destination for training and for growth and stuff um you know varies across industry and in this industry this one particular one i'd fallen on my feet in the single best place i could have possibly gone was up the road Mm -hmm. and a lot of my friends lived there 
it, it was a really obvious choice. Was there one specific place you wanted to work? Um, to be honest, not really. Uh, I I had a bit of a sort of big fish, small pond mentality at the time, I think. I think I kind of saw myself as a bit of a big shot. Um, but I also think I had just enough intel, just enough intelligence to recognize that Bath, then this bar I was working there, lovely as it was, probably wasn't as good as these London places. <laughs> probably. I, I, I reckon I just like to think that there was something special about it, but maybe not completely convinced. Um, a lot of the big names, you know, Savoy, Artesian, all this kind of stuff. Dandelion wasn't actually a thing by that point. It was before that. Um, a lot of those places, I kind of I recognise that. What I loved about hospitality, the fun, the fast pace, um, just the, like how informal our service was as well. Uh, it wasn't going to no, work for no me. No Savoy for all. you. Yeah, no, not at all. That's never, never been a fantasy of mine to entertain. Um, but I, I applied to, you know, Niger, I applied to an absolute bunch of places. Um, and I got none of them because in retrospect, my CV was like one place for a year. It was incredibly weak CV. There was no, no way. What was your title there? Were you like head bartender or just a bartender there? Assistant manager. Oh yeah. Assistant manager. Useless. Uh Um, uh, from a CV's perspective, (laughs) absolutely useless. Uh, and uh, so I, I ended up just moving to London anyway, and I started working in uh, events stuff, which is great money, but usually pretty soulless. Um, if not, you know, like there are great events companies out there, but for someone who, like me at the time, wanted to like really grow creatively, uh, that's not what the events market really wanted. Certainly not at the time. Most of their clients were just right. Come here, do mojitos, sure. Um, every now and then I'd get like some private party gig and it would be really, really cool. Um, but most of the time, really, I was just doing events work with very unmotivated people who just needed the money. And I used that money, I guess, just like them to support myself. And then I'd have my own little home lab as such. And just like I spent probably six months just experimenting with homemade stuff. And that was fun. That was nice. Uh, and then eventually I got a job at a bar called Shaker & Co. I moved to Camden. Uh, and I ended up being bar manager there, uh, and they they had like a consultancy arm, and that's kind of where my consultancy started going. As I quipped earlier, you know, there's not many neuroscientists in, in hospitality, um, and by this point, I'd started having a bit of a fascination with the way like the brain constructs and perceives flavour uh, as oh, a yeah. as a like a, a neurological experience, not just like a sensory one, uh, and so I started working with their training um school i started working um in their consultancy and stuff got a couple of clients and then i was managing their bar so that was that was really good because that was like kind of like a triple workload in some ways Um, and were you getting out of it what you thought you would when you left yes to come yes and and no um shaker was a difficult business to work for in some ways uh in ways that i can't really go into without it becoming deeply unpolitical (laughs) Uh, but I, I think in many ways I did grow there and in many ways I didn't the way I wanted to. Uh, but the consultancy in particular was a really, really useful thing, um, mostly because it was just enabling. You know, I think a, a lot of people uh, in the drinks industry are very capable of doing consultancy, but how to establish yourself is, a, is just a totally different skill to actually um, doing it. When did you start thinking about using your neuroscience or had you been doing that all, all along? It, you know, bring that into... To this s- other world that you had decided to to some follow. extent I'd been doing that all along um, uh, it, when I started like reading up more on certain people who were you know formally putting it in place in actual licensed venues uh, I started to see you know patterns and ways I could apply my sort of fairly lofty ideas at the time actually realistically um, and I started you know naturally imitating them to some extent and then kind of came out with my own sort of understanding of things and you know, part of its validity as a, as a, I guess, a worldview within cocktails for me is that it is still growing. It's not, it's not a phase I went through. I am very much still learning and understanding it. And most of what I do now is actually disregard things. Most of the time, I, I seem to spend more time internally uh, shooting down old theories rather than creating new ones. I think I started with a very complicated understanding of how flavor works, and it's steadily just become more simple to me. Is it just to define it a little more? Mm-hmm. How? someone like me who orders a drink why they order that drink or how the flavors are going to be affect me so the funny thing is that is uh that is like the the sort of the the common understanding of what it would be 
and that's not what I thought it's it was at the time. Not at all time. what I just asked. But but no, that is you. You absolutely are right. I uh-huh. I overcomplicated it a lot to begin with, and made it so much more to do with you know the brain and how we interpret the molecules and create flavors that I actually largely dis, uh, discarded the customer in like the early early stages of my understanding of this, which was, I mean, maybe a necessary error to make so it could evolve, but it was very obnoxious <laughs> and it's, it's part of why like I have a certain cynicism for people who take kind of a similar approach nowadays you know when when bartenders are applying here for jobs and they're trying to tell me about like the science and this sort of stuff I usually see that little twinkle in their eye which I had which actually involves probably being dicks to customers or just assuming I guess they're going to order like okay I look the way I do so I'm going to order this one thing yeah I mean, well, I mean, that can that can be a fairly troublesome discussion anyway, mm. because if we're honest, you know, when you make an assessment of someone based on what they present to you, um, if you are correct, that's just a heuristic. That's a rule of thumb. And that's being good at your job. If you are wrong, you are prejudiced. Right. And that is that is a very, very thorny bush to go wading mm-hmm. into. Mm-hmm. So was you're, you're working um, and and consulting. Did you think that there would be a place where you could put this all in action, like um, your own place? Uh, Was that I, the goal? I, I'm not even sure. I remember having, you know, so most most of my friends from school and university had gone into, you know, real jobs, uh, as, as my family would job. probably put it at the time. Um, I used to joke about that all the time, from defense mechanism. Uh, but yeah, like I'd, I'd have, you know, friends and family being like, right, so when you open in their own bar. And I, I think that was less about demonstrating an interest and perhaps tolerance of, uh, of my lifestyle and career goals. Uh, and more about, you know, them, I think, assuming that that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, now I look back at it and I think that actually in many ways bar ownership is not all that for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, if you want an easy, good life within hospitality, consulting is vastly better. Uh, I, but I didn't, I didn't outright have plans for a bar that were just on hold um, I didn't outright have issues with owning a bar. I wasn't trying to avoid it, but I also wasn't especially geared towards it. I think, again, perhaps a slightly more positive spin retrospectively on it was I think I was still just trying to find out who I was and what I wanted to, what I wanted to achieve, mm-hmm. what, I, what I wanted to be good at, you know, how I wanted to be defined. Well, we're sitting in your bar, Cocktail Training Company, <laughs> so why don't, after Shaker & Co., tell me about how you came upon where we're sitting right now and how that happened. Uh, so after Shaker & Co, um, well, actually during Shaker & Co, I had met Andy, who I think was the first person you interviewed. Yes. Um, Andy and I met at a drinks competition, um, which was kind of funny. It was my first ever competition. And I, I was sat next to this, you know, this lovely guy and his wife. Um, I think they were married. Then. Yeah, I think they were married then. Um, and that turned out to be Andy and Jen. And you know, when you've known someone for a long time, it's kind of fascinating to interface how you see them now with what you first encountered. And uh, they, again, those two, those just don't fit together for me, but I've just got to trust myself that it's not some weird mistake. It definitely was there. I'm sure it was there. Uh, but yeah, um, I was in this this competition and I'd been put through to the final really just as a courtesy nod to Shaker because we were hosting the competition. And I'd never really put a, competition drink together before I didn't really know what I was doing uh, I was super nervous in the presentation obviously and I remember I'm not ashamed of this at all actually I, uh, I remember speaking to like, the other competitors, looking around the room, seeing what was going on and thinking to myself if I beat even one of these people, these national finalists I'm going to be so proud of myself and I want that to be this one guy who will remain nameless who I thought was such a knob uh, and, like he really, really ground my gears, uh, and I just wanted to beat this one guy, and I ended up taking third, and he took second. I was oh. So annoyed. Uh, but the guy who won was also absolutely amazing. That was uh, that was Nathan Merriman, who I think went on to work at. No, he was working at the Sephora at the time, and he was absolute quality, and well, presumably still is. But I haven't seen him in a while. Uh, and Andy actually took fourth. So in my in my head, I was like, "All right, so this guy's lovely. I seem to have beaten him. Well, that's cool." I felt pretty good about it. And then, uh, like two weeks after that, he won world class for, for the UK. I was just like, "All right, that's an annoying way to put me back in my place." Um, and the funny thing is, Andy and I like we just crossed paths all the time. We never made plans to like go out for a beer, get to know each other, or anything like that. We just constantly saw each other at, at drinks competitions. And um, 
I think perhaps I'd started to be a little bit more <clears throat> sort of team focused. I'd started to, you know, consider leaving Shaker and I'd been thinking, you know, who do I want to work with? Who do I think I could learn the most of? But also from a partnership perspective, who have I, who, who could I have that, that weird balance with where on the one hand um, there's a compatibility and on the other hand we have totally separate skills. So, you know, that kind of bolster each other. And um, and Andy resoundingly stuck out in my mind for a long time because I was constantly seeing in competitions and we were both, well, really young. Andy's horrifically, embarrassingly young. Um, uh, Andy is two years younger than me. Uh, and at, at the time, I was in these comps and pretty much everyone else we were competing against because at some point we'd both gotten quite good at this. Most of the people we were competing with were five years older than us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I didn't get many wins, but I was always holding my own. I was, taking, I was getting bridesmaided quite a lot. I was constantly getting second. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Andy, I, just const- I always remembered seeing him, really liking him, really loving his creative approach to stuff, but also remembering that not only is he like me and that he's considerably younger than everyone else but doing fairly well, but he's actually even younger than I am. Uh, and I just, I had my eyes on him from that moment. And at some point I remember seeing him advertise online, uh, Steam and Rye, uh, where he was going to go and set it up, and I I applied for position of head bartender, and he he gave it to me. Uh, and Stephen Rye was eight months of absolute madness. It was such a weird place. In fact, I can be quite honest about it now because it's closed. Yay! Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, Stephen Rye was on the on the very bottom floor. Was going to be a um, like kind of speakeasy sort of vibe. It's meant to have like a sort of a tr- like old old timey train coach kind of feel to it. Uh, and that was meant to, you know, take advantage of the fact that certainly at the time in the city, as in the area, the city of London, right. you know, bank general area, there was actually a bit of a glut of real quality cocktails. Meanwhile, there were lots and lots of bankers with an extraordinary amount of cash, very happily blow it and expense it on cocktails. Uh, and so they wanted the downstairs area to be that. And they had this like top floor, which is like private hire. And then in the middle was realistically the prime fillet of this, you know, steak sandwich, uh, which was a 550 capacity uh, mega room. Uh, And it just, unsurprisingly, it warped things massively. So my job was like downstairs, like doing all the quality and like basically being a speakeasy about it. But, you know, the the business didn't care and they couldn't have because it couldn't have survived on that. It needed the sales from the ground floor. And the ground floor was like six stations of pure madness. it, yeah, and it, yeah, it, it was just so so busy, and it was such a weird and diverse place. And the team was, I mean, the team was magnificent. Like Andy, Andy is an architect of many things. He he builds our bars, but he's an architect of a team in a very bizarre way as well. Because he picked up, you know, grafters, he picked up creatives, he picked up just party animals, um, and somehow we didn't all hate each other, uh, which was really really fun. Um, but you know, we we both got wound like quite ground down by that business it was a very hard company to work for and our customers were questionable at times um and he definitely had it way way worse than i did uh but at some point he and i just started just talking very casually about maybe doing our own thing at some point and uh he he had his eyes on the site in camden i you know i mentioned you know that i'd, I'd saved up you know a lot from well, a variety of things, but mostly um, uh, from the consulting. Uh, and, you know, there was maybe a, I might be able to afford to invest in something together. And it kind of continued from there. And then at some point he told me that there was this guy called Ollie who he used to work with, who uh, he'd, he'd said, you know, like maybe they'd go into business someday and, you know, maybe I should speak to him. And, you know, what I said earlier about... Uh, you know, having this really weird disconnect between the person you first meet versus, you know, who they are now is very, very entertaining. Because the first time I met Ollie, I remember he was quite a skinny chap who came in with a, a nice moleskin coat. And I remember thinking, this guy's disappointingly friendly. He's very, very nice. Almost, almost. <laughs> I didn't know anyone could bland. be dis- disappointingly <laughs> friendly. <laughs> and of course, he turned out to be one of the strangest people in the world and also probably my best friend. I'm saying all of this, looking at him creepily. Yes, he's right and, behind yeah, us. He's so. right behind us. <laughs> a couple of blow torches between us, by coincidence. But yeah, so um, uh, met up with Ollie. Um, we got on very, very well. Um, he ended up, uh, for a variety of reasons, needing a, a place to live, and uh, he he did what could only be described as magpied my flatmate. By crashing on the couch until she could not bear him anymore, and she left, and he took her room, and a beautiful friendship began. 
Um, but uh, by this point um, Ollie had handed in his notice to where he was working at London Cocktail Club Ollie and I were living together and driving each other mad and uh, Andy was working out the last of his time at Steam and Rye and I'd uh, I'd stopped working there and was just doing events and one or two little consultancies and we were focusing on trying to you know get up on our feet as, as a business we decided the Cocktail Trading Co was going to be the name of it we decided a couple of, a couple of like very sort of very basic but quite profoundly different like principles to the business and to the brand the things we wanted to do differently you know than than the stereotype of, of ownership within hospitality did you all agree with everything well th- this is the thing which i've always found quite like funny but also quite warming about it in that andy ollie and myself are three of the most incredibly different people in many many ways um, but certain core principles, almost by coincidence, seem to be very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's made like life so much easier uh, working together because there is quite a profound sense of trust. Even just being honest, the fact that all three of us utterly hate drugs has completely changed the way that you know three people can work together in owning a bar. Never had to question what's in the safe. Never had to worry about someone maybe just whacking that off to the casino and popping it on green like it's it's never been a concern there's always just been a very basic understanding of one another uh, a good deal of trust and just the knowledge that the three of us seemingly are just decent guys who don't have a history of messing people around screwing anyone over don't seem to enjoy it don't seem to have you know endless neuroses or the need to put others down and make themselves feel better etc and it's it's always just been very very easy the three of us being on a sort of a, a plane and understanding um, well, your core values can be the same, but you could have completely different ideas of the kind of bar you wanted. Was there internal struggle, or did you all three know exactly? Um, we we spent a great deal of time. We, I, I think, you know, there's this almost like uh, celestial aspect to people's personalities and the things they want to accomplish. You know, if if your different values are kind of objects with their own like orbit and and gravity and stuff, and their you know maybe their importance to you is their mass and thus the extent to which they affect other things around them. If you know three things, three people spend a great deal of time in each other's. Uh, company, you know, those those orbits tend to sort of coalesce, they tend to interact. And I think we did have very different visions. Uh, I think Andy and Ollie had a fairly similar vision, and mine was very different to begin with. Um, but by spending a great deal of time constantly talking, constantly discussing, it wasn't a compromise that came about, it was a collaboration. It wasn't that they wanted, you know, maybe Andy and Ollie wanted A and B, and I wanted D, and we arrived on somewhere between B and C. It was that the whole thing escalated into something that was better than what we could have accomplished mm-hmm. individually. And as I say, we are very different people, but we also are quite polarised individuals in that I think each of us has one or two areas in which we are exceptionally strong. And almost by a balancing act, one or two areas in which we are unbelievably, pathetically weak. Uh, and by there being three of us with a mutual goal and a good friendship, um, you know, it was quite quickly defined what what roles each person does so that those tremendous weaknesses never reach the public eye (laughs) and only the cocktails came to the table and only the cocktails came to the table so um you had this idea and originally they were pop-ups right or well yeah is that wrong no no because i remember the first time this is we're four years ago i went downstairs through a different restaurant to smithfields exactly yeah. yeah um well Pop-ups are, you know, a really trendy thing. Here we are sat in a, a bar in, in Shoreditch. Pop-ups probably, I reckon, are written on the walls roughly a thousand times in the nearest postcode. Uh, but for us, a pop-up was just the only available thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we we were trying to act like grown-ups and, you know, pitch for sites and everything. But honestly, it was hilarious. Like, I don't know what madness it would take for a landlord to look at three 25-year-olds with basically no money, no covenant, like no real established background, no no leverage. Like for us to completely dick a landlord around and not pay rent would have not really had much of a fallout on us in many ways, mm-hmm. apart from the you know the usual legal ramifications. We 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 had nothing to to lose um, because we were such junior operators. Uh, and though we'd represented other businesses and operated to a fairly decent level and thus had the experience arguably to pull it off, by not having Covenant, we were pretty much untouchable. So we'd we'd pitch for sites and we just never, ever got them. And then uh, a real stroke of luck happened. Um, uh, Andy had consulted with someone called Hezzy, who owned uh, Urban Leisure Group. Um, 
he'd done a few menu designs, bits and pieces for them in the past, and Hezzy had approached him about uh, the basement of a restaurant he owned called Central & Co., uh, and said that the downstairs area was just not performing at all. And, you know, did Andy have recommendations for a rehaul or a rebrand or, you know, just new menu and stuff? Uh, and I remember actually going to that bar once once and it was a really cool space, but it just didn't work. It was a really cool concept, but it just didn't really work. Um, and Andy was halfway through, you know, designing a new idea and a new menu when he spoke to me and Ollie and said, you know, why don't we just try to take it off his hands? Why don't we just try to say, right, I could charge you this much money to do a menu for you or... Um, this is what we'll offer you annually for us to brand the space as our own and open up our first spot. And unbelievably, they went for it. And uh, the result was uh, like a dreamlike start to a business. Like we literally couldn't have had a better win. Uh, the, the consequences of screwing up were so low that we had an opportunity to uh, like take some big gambles, to take a really different direction to a bunch of things. Uh, the costs involved were also so low that we had the opportunity to do a bunch of things right from the start. You know, uh, two of the main trends, and annoyingly they are trends, uh, they, they should be fundamental principles which matter to everyone, but they are also trends. Uh, those things in hospitality right now would be, you know, mental health and, and employer, employees' rights and treating staff the right way, etc. Um, and uh, environmentalism. And those were those were core principles to us. But there's also no denying that if we hadn't been so fortunate financially to begin with, uh, we just wouldn't have been able to follow through on those principles. It would have come at the expense of opening our business. So right from the start, you know, we were able to go zero to landfill. Uh, we were uh, we were some of the first people to use you know metal and pyrex straws, um, and we didn't tweet about it. We didn't talk about it. It was just what we thought was right. But we were able to do those things. We were able to launch a a new business with three of us with basically dick all experience and pay London living wage uh, and as a result our team just fell into place we had friends who we'd previously worked with some at Steam and Rye some at London Cocktail Club um, uh, just really fall behind us and give us just everything we needed to launch a really really great bar uh, and key part of that as I say was was luck you know? and I guess sitting here now in your own space um, obviously the cocktails and the the creativity the the what you had chosen to offer on your menu mm. was successful. Yeah. You, you know, you, the, the well, vision you had that you three agreed on at the pyramid, that yeah. was... Well, yeah. Um, and the, the thing is, I've talked quite a lot about Andy. I have, to some extent, left, um, left Ollie's input out on this. Um, Andy was, and still is, an incredibly creative person. Um, but his creativity sometimes requires some translation. Some of the things within Andy's head... Uh, don't translate the same way to other other people. He is simply wired differently. And it's a little bit having, you know, the best joke in the world, but people don't get it. Um, me and Ollie, to some extent, acted as translators upon that. But Ollie also uh, kind of shaped me in some ways in that um, my whole, like, neuroscientific approach and everything, um, though I'd steadily become less of a wanker about it and was much more focused on the customer, um, Ollie introduced something to me which uh, I think I'd been told but publicly or openly agreed with but not really enacted, which was just to do with atmospherics and actual good hosting, actual, like, proper accommodation of people. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this idea that the best uh, service comes from, you know, being treated politely, but to me, polite is cold. Um, uh, mutual respect isn't the same thing as politeness. Um, the best hospitality any of us experience is usually going to our best friend's house, you know. Um, and and Ollie kind of educated me on that to some extent. But what what it kind of translated to me uh, on a neurological level, and as I say, it was something I was aware of but never really embraced, uh, was the fact that no matter how much I study all these neurological processes, uh, they are unified in a part of a brain that long precedes conscious awareness which means that all the things happening around us, all the things which contribute to our other senses are going to be mixed up before we are aware of them. So from a, from just from a neurological standpoint, all these atmospherics things that Ollie had picked up in his degree in music um, were, if anything, more important than all of the things that I'd studied so hard to focus on. Because, you know, let's face it, you can go to a great bar and have a crap drink and still enjoy yourself, whereas you can have the best drink in the world in an utterly crap bar and not enjoy it so i kind of had a lot of my zeal tempered by that and it resulted in a really nice kind of like pyramid as such whereas 
Andy's creativity and obsession with operational efficiency, which are two things you rarely see in the same human, um, uh, meets kind of my perfectionism when it came to like balance of liquids and understanding, you know, the the, the operations within the brain that constructs taste, aroma, and flavor. M- meeting Ollie's absolutely unparalleled understanding of hospitality um, and atmospherics, lighting, music, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is, that's that's kind of what made us in many ways. We didn't have the PR budget to tell everyone that we were doing the coolest stuff out there. What we had were incredibly visual serves, which did amazingly well on social media because it was just as things like Instagram and you know that were, twi- were kicking off. So we basically had some of the best PR around without paying for it because everyone was doing it for us. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of bars produce beautiful cocktails and then don't actually want people taking photos of them because most people are crap photo- photographers with their with their camera phones. Ours were ridiculous servers, which always looked good, even if they were a little bit blurry, and that that put it absolutely everywhere. Um, but the main thing is the atmosphere was always amazing. Like that was always a fun bar to work in, no matter what. I had some of the worst hangovers of my life behind that bar, and I always had a good time. Um, Meanwhile, as I say, like the team we got on board were really cool. Um, the the understanding of hospitality we've always had has been, you know, kind of welcome to my house. You know, um, uh, much more about just like openness and honesty and actually wanting people to be there. Most of the people who we work with, and you know, in all of our parts now, are outrageously, almost insecurely social people who derive their happiness from people around them, and that's that's a level of hospitality which you can't always train. Um, but for whatever reason, they flocked towards us. And um, then we had some good reviews come in. We had Time Out absolutely sort us out. They uh, gave us five stars in Bar of the Week. And I remember going from a Monday, which was the quietest shift we've ever had as a business, uh, and being very, very stressed about it, uh, to a Tuesday where the restaurant upstairs uh, was empty, uh, but our bar in their basement had a line out the door. And that Tuesday was the busiest night we'd ever had at that point. And the Wednesday was a record. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday were all a record. And from that point on, it didn't really let up that much. Like, the initial exposure leveled off a little bit from time out because we weren't part of the week anymore. Um, but it was a small space. It was really small. It was, you know, 40, 50-seater max. And those are, you know, everyone feels like they're mostly made of elbows. Uh, but it, it was just busy from that point on. And we were able to recover our opening costs within about three or four months, which was unbelievable. Fantastic. Uh, and then at that opportunity, we had an, uh, at that point, we had an opportunity to work with Ben Alcock, who's our business partner from the um, Bristol Bars, so Her Majesty's Secret Service and Filthy 13. And, you know, we, we could have either paid ourselves out at this point, but to be honest, we'd only been operating for six months at this point. We thought, well, this is, this is the time to really be working hard. So we, you know, we opened that place with him. Uh, and then we got the opportunity to do Smithfields. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, you know, we, we lost both those sites because they were subleases of arguably quite questionable legality, if we're honest. Um, but again, like, for whatever reason, the gods just took care of us because around the time when we were standing to lose those sites because the business, the buildings themselves were, were going, um, we, we signed on this lease here. Uh, and we had sufficiently good trading history by this point that we could get bank loans, uh, and without selling any equity or anything like that, we managed to get the funds together to actually take on our first full lease. Um, and it's funny talking about it because it feels like this incredibly long journey, but all of this only happened within a year. Uh, it all happened incredibly fast. And you know, now we've got Brick Lane, which we, because we've got it for you know a 25 year lease, uh, we actually could properly invest in, not you know as one brand ambassador early said I really enjoyed this when he said it said uh, oh yeah it's fun in here it's like the artesian but everything's from ebay that was absolutely true everything was for me everything was cheap as hell I, and then you know we got this actual lease and this actual site and we could actually make it nice uh, and that was that was great and then you know since then it's it's kind of never really stopped uh, andy ollie and myself didn't get into hospitality so we could stop bartending we're all in full-time service um you know, we've got the two bars in Bristol. We've got uh, CDC and Murder Rink now in, in Tottenham Court Road, which is amazing to get back into that area because that's where our first bar was. Always missed it. Um, but, you know, we're, we're all still doing what we're doing. And, you know, we all still love it. That's why we do it. Well, that sounds great. I want to have one of those drinks that you've been uh, talking about that photograph so well. Absolutely. Should we go to the bar and have one? That sounds good. And what a cocktail it was. It was so great to have finally had Elliot on my show, I can't tell you. And for the 150th one, well, it was better than words can say. 
Now it's time to celebrate with that cocktail of the week. Our cocktail of the week may not be easy to make, but this Mitsuari's downfall is well worth the try. You kind of have to make it up as you go along. There are only three ingredients. Three parts monkey shoulder scotch whiskey, and that's the easy part. One part jalapeno and fennel syrup, that's mixing jalapeno and fennel and cooking it down with sugar. And finally, four parts of clarified pineapple cilantro soda. All I can tell you is that clarifying is the process of removing impurities from a liquid by skimming the surface of it as it's heated. Hope that helps. Oh, make sure when you're done to chill it and then carbonate it, which means making it bubbly. Then pouring it over an ice sphere when you're ready. Didn't get any of that? Well, that's why we go to Cocktail Trading Company and leaving it to Elliot, Andy, and Ollie. You'll find this recipe, more whiskey recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. I know that cocktail of the week was impossible to make, but I feel we all needed a bit of fun during what is an insane time. My day-to-day concern is that if my parents get ill, I won't be allowed into the USA to even see them. So a month of trying to clarify pineapple will make me feel as if I'm achieving something. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lushlife, and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly and wash your hands. Okay, the second part was mine. So the news. Thanks to our friendly pandemic, COVID-19, Lush Life is taking a break. I must admit, it's a little tough doing interviews face-to-face when you are not even allowed out. I'm busy exploring options, so keep on following me. I'm still on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at A Lush Life Manual, where I'll be making some drinks at home. Until next time, bottoms up.